Our scripture reading for today will be from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, though that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a wise and a poor better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who also who was who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, uh, all of whom he led. Yet those who can, who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. All right. Sorry about that feedback. Uh, that might have been me turning my mic on, either way. Here we go. Uh, so um, if you've been with us uh, for a while, you know we're in Ecclesiastes. If this is your first time, we're in Ecclesiastes, or you haven't been with us in a while. And um, uh, Ecclesiastes is a, one of the, the books of wisdom. And so we'd hope that as we progress through this book, we'll learn from wisdom, wisdom from God. Uh, uh, there, there's a few things as we've gone through this that have stuck out to me. And I've mentioned before that Ecclesiastes in some ways feels like the back door to joy. Um, in some ways, it gives advice that seems maybe not good uh, or just really odd. There are just a few things that have stuck out to me, uh, and I, I, might be, I might word this in a way that's not helpful, but one of the things that I found to be helpful is that in chapter 1, there, there were, uh, the preacher was the, the preacher is the, kind of the speaker throughout the book, but the preacher went to, to great lengths just to communicate, you're not very important, and you never really will be that important. And I think there's some relief in that, because a lot of what we hear is you're amazing, you're, you can do anything. It's just like, huh, you can't do anything. You can do a few things, and those things you do have already been done. You'll soon, be, you'll, you'll soon die and be forgotten. <laughs> and I actually think there's some joy on the back end of that, of, of just a relief. You don't have to prove to anybody that you're a big deal, because you're just not a big deal, never will be. I find it comforting. Um, two, um, happiness, um, is more of a gift than an achievement. And just so many times we think we want to, we want to stir up, make, you know, create this happy life when God gives enjoyment and happiness, it's a gift. And it's in these small things, almost insanely small things. Three, time is God's tool to make everything beautiful comes from Ecclesiastes 3.11. God will make everything beautiful in its time. The way hard, difficult, and ugly things become beautiful by the work of God, 
his time. I find that encouraging too. And then uh, last week, we said, uh, well, the preacher really said, the preacher in this text here says that the best that we can do in a broken world is eat and drink and find enjoyment in our work. <laughs> so again, an odd thing to, that we find from the scriptures, uh, but I think there's something to understand that the world is broken and the best we can do is fulfill the lot that God's given us, eat, drink, and enjoy our work. Uh, today, we're going to be in a, in a new topic that is, in, again, staying in the category of wisdom. And so there's something in our text today that will make you wise or wiser, and it's pretty clear what it is, and it's basically just this. We need friends. <laughs> so anyway, as we look at the text today, there, there's four things in our text today that I think uh, that, that we learn about friendship. Uh, one, isolation will make you unhappy. Two, friends make you safer. Three, friends make you smarter. And four, popularity will fade. So first, isolation will make you unhappy. Look at verse seven and eight. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toll. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for, what, for whom am I tooling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. So what is this unhappy business this person finds themselves in? It's an isolated life where they are working and even having a good measure of success, but there's no one to share it with. They're just collecting. And the idea here is that acquiring wealth isn't so much the key to happiness as much it would be, as it would be to share it with others. And listen to what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard, again, this theme we see in class, working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus was saying, you're going to be happier giving than you will be receiving. And that's why being in the business of receiving, of acquiring a lot, like this guy in our text today, that is more about receiving than he is about giving. It's an unhappy business. He's going to be more happy to share and to give it away than he will be to acquire wealth. And it's interesting that, that Paul communicated a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He's dealing with, he's talking to thieves, all right? And he says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, again, work, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul doesn't say don't steal because it's wrong. That would have been fine to say. It would have been right. And he doesn't say don't steal because that's not how you want to be treated, though, again, that would be right. Instead, he said, don't steal, share. And the reason he's saying that is because there's more joy in giving and sharing than there is in acquiring stuff for yourself. So it seems like the first principle of friendship that we see in our text today is that we should be a friend by sharing with others. And if you're not giving to others, if you're not sharing with others, then you're robbing yourself of joy. So we shouldn't hoard our money. If we get into that business, it is an unhappy business. We should share our money, and that is a happy business. And, and Jesus, in Luke 16, Jesus gives this really odd parable, which it seems, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes. It's one of those things that, man, it feels like this shouldn't be in the Bible. It's the parable about the dishonest manager. 
And the dishonest manager is the hero, which doesn't make sense. I don't have time to get into it this morning. But anyway, here's what happens with this parable. There's a dishonest manager. He does a bad job. He's about to get fired. He realizes he's about to get fired. And so he goes and finds all the people that, that owe his master money. And he cuts their bill in half. And he does that. So after he gets fired, they'll welcome him back. And maybe he can work for him and, and be in good standing. And Jesus surprisingly says, hey, be like that. I mean, not in the literal sense, it's a parable. So the, the meaning is, is, isn't just superficial to what the story is. But, but here's what he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Jesus says this, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, of, of money, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Like, again, this is one of those parables I would like more time to expand on. But it seems at, at a basic level, Jesus is talking about leveraging your money to make friends, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, invest your money in cultivating friendships. You will be happier if you invest your money in cultivating friendships. And there we see it in this text, there could even be positive eternal consequences for doing that. And look, we talked weeks ago um, when we were in the minor prophets about giving, I, I, I hope everybody gives money to the church. But I hope you don't give so much money to the church that you don't have room to share your wealth with friends and give to those who are in need and are able to invest and cultivate friendships. You will be happier if you do. And if your work is focused on accumulating money and things for yourself, then you will be in an unhappy business. Now, let's move on to the second point. Friends make you safer. Uh, look at verse 9 through 12 in our text. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one, or as God said in Genesis 2, it is not good that man should be alone. In our text, we see their work will be more productive. They will recover better and quicker from setbacks. They're going to find comfort in their friendships, and they're going to be less vulnerable. Just this past week, this time last week, when I was up here, I had three problems. Two of them were making me anxious. One of them was, was just making me sad. All three of those problems no longer exist. They all got solved. I did not solve those problems. You know who did solve those problems? Friends. Now, in the two that made me anxious, I sought out help. I said, I got a problem. Will you help me, please? And friends helped. And then there was another, a friend knew I was sad about something. And there was no real solution. It was just we were good enough friends to where they knew I was sad about a thing. He found a way to uh, address that issue and, and kind of solve that problem. And, and here's, here's what you, sh you should pick up with that, is that in all three scenarios, or in, in two scenarios, I sought the person out. And uh, in a, the other scenario, I shared a problem. But in, in all of those scenarios, People knew me well enough or I knew them well enough to where we could share, I could share my problems with them. 
and then they could help me out. And look, it, life is hard. And if you don't have friends in your life, it's going to be harder than it needs to be or harder than it should be. You, you need people that care about you and you need people that have your back and that are happy to help. And look, the, these issues, these problems that, that, that got solved involved me engaging with others and two, straight up going out and asking for help. And then another, just sharing what a problem was. And so if people don't know what's going on with me, then I can't experience the benefits of friendship. So part of having friends is letting people in on what's making you anxious and what's making you sad and sometimes explicitly asking for help or at least sharing enough to where they might know what could help. And so having friends and having the benefit of friends requires some initiation on your part. Oftentimes, people can feel alone. They, they feel like, I, I don't have friends. Nobody really seeks me out. Nobody reaches out. And, and I wonder if in those cases, in, in your church family, do you have two or three friends that you're praying for, that you know something that's going on with them, that you've initiated with them? How are things going? How can I be praying for you? How can I be in it with you? And look, if, if you feel alone or isolated in your church, then you at least need to start with, am I being a good friend to others? And not just begin with, people aren't a good friend to me. Because those people who I know who are rich in friendship are people who initiate, who aren't just trying to, uh, I should say, acquire friends. They're actually trying to be good friends. Those are the people who seem to have the richest friendships. And we need friends because it's one thing to be sad, or to be anxious, and it's a whole other ballgame to be sad, anxious, and alone. That's where it stings the worst. And the church should work and structure itself so that no one is alone. That's why we make this big deal about small groups. In a sense, it's good to gather together on Sundays. That's part of the equation, but there needs to be things happening outside of Sunday morning. And this is what we see happening in the, in the early church. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 2, 44 and 45, we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then again, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, we read this. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so the church should be a, a group of friends who are looking out for each other. And so, you know, this is a transient town. You guys are going to come into Sartville and leave. A lot of us, you know, I don't know how many will be here in 10 years. In 10 years, I can guarantee you the way Redeemer has been, there's going to be a lot of faces that are here now, won't be here. There's going to be some new faces coming in. And as people are looking and joining churches, you're not just looking for a Sunday morning you like, you're looking for a group of friends. You know, I, I, I disagree with the, the Quakers on, on a lot of things. One kind of neat thing, they often refer to themselves as a society of friends. I don't think that's such a bad idea. A church is a group of friends that have each other's back. And Paul in Galatians 6.10 said this, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. 
So when you join a church, you're joining a, a family of friends that have each other's back. On the highs and the lows, we're all in this together. And, and part of the joy of being a committed church member isn't that you make it every Sunday, but, th- but that you have the privilege to give yourself to others. And it's better to give than to receive. receive. Friends make you safer, and you make your friends safer. Now, next, we'll talk about how friends make you smarter. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So you have a guy who is poor. He's young and he's poor, but he's wiser than the old king. And the reason he's wiser than the old king is because the old king no longer knew how to take advice. Part of having real friends is having honest conversation where advice is welcomed. And one thing we see over and over in the book of Proverbs is that the wise person receives advice and the fool does not receive advice. Here's just a couple of, in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And in order to listen to advice, you have to have space in your life where friends can speak into your life and be honest with you without thinking they're going to start a fight with you. With, with the thought that as I give this person advice, before they fight me, they've, they've either said outright or, or proven that they will try to understand it first before arguing with them. And look, I, I should say, um, throughout the Proverbs, we keep seeing over and over that a fool doesn't listen to advice. And so we know our tendency is to, to reject advice, to be prideful, and to not receive it. But I should say... <laughs> That not all advice is good advice, right? You can have some idiots give you bad advice and you wouldn't be a fool to reject it. So there requires some discernment. But if someone has gone so far as to speak into your life and give you advice, then you should be highly suspicious of yourself and your tendency to reject it uh, and, and just think whatever you have in your own mind is what's right. Our tendency is to mess it up. And so we don't have to accept everything that's ever given to us, but we should be highly suspicious of ourselves if we reject advice. And look, sometimes advice is solicited. You ask for it. I find that to be really easy. Sometimes advice is unsolicited. I find that difficult. I almost need to prepare myself emotionally. You know, I can think there was a time years ago, uh, it was when I lived in Tallahassee and, um, Man, I can, I can remember this like I'm sitting there right now. Some, some folks asked me to get lunch. Sure, great, let's get lunch. So we're hanging out, and I, I noticed the conversation seems really, a lot of attention is going my way, and there's a lot of questions. And, and then about, I don't know, I mean, I was way late to figure this out. Like 30 minutes probably into being rebuked, I'm like, I think they're telling me I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> it was just so, like, not expected. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't receive it well. I fought against it a little bit. I think it was one of those things, like, a week later, I called back. And I was like, I think I see what you're trying to say. Sorry, <laughs> you know. But we're just, we generally don't receive it well. And our instinct for unsolicited advice is often to reject it. And, and do you know, do you know where most of our unsolicited advice will probably come from? Yeah, I mean, y'all know. 
It's going to be the house, right? It's going to be in our homes. So can your spouse give you unsolicited advice? And if they do, do you receive it well? Or does it start a fight? But advice shouldn't just be limited to our homes. Look, the sweet spot about having a family and being in the home together is that you know each other enough. Like you're there and it's kind of just going to happen. But something sweet, when somebody outside of your home knows you well enough to bring something to your attention, that's something rare. Now, it shouldn't be so, so rare in the church, but it's a sweet and precious thing. And is there room or do you, have you cultivated friendships outside the home enough to where people who aren't your family feel comfortable or at least comfortable enough to say, speak into your life, to give you unsolicited advice? Look, it's possible for people to, re, be, to be really smart, really successful, and even respected. But if they cannot take advice, they're a fool. And sometimes the more impressive you are, the smarter that you are, the more successful you are, the more difficult it is to receive advice. That's why it might be easier for a poor youth to receive advice than an old king. Now, let's move on to my final point. Popularity will fade. Uh, in verse 14 through 16, we read this. Uh, and this is about the young poor man uh, that went on to become king. Verse 14, for he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had, been, he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people he led. Yet those who come, who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. He was a young poor man that eventually became king. However, over time, people grew tired of him. I'm prone towards being motivated to managing people's opinions of me. Um, some people are kind of bold and they kind of like to stir the pot. That's not me so much. I mainly just want everybody to like me. <laughs> and so I'm prone to kind of speaking and doing towards getting people to like me. And I, like, I'm not, I'm not totally enslaved to it, but it's ever present and I'm usually aware of it. But look, chasing after popular opinion or public approval is a fool's errand. Or to use the words of the preacher, it's like chasing after the wind. Getting approval from others is kind of like grabbing the air. It's just, it's, it's not going to work. It's an unwise and unhappy way to spend your life. You know, and all the chaos of, of 2020, you know, one good thing was there was no way to make everybody happy. I mean, pick, pick your issue. And, and there used to be like, even in like maybe a conservative church, you know, we were kind of, we're all kind of over here on this issue or that issue. And we've kind of have some theology that we mostly agree on here or these things. But 2020, yeah, we were all divided on everything. And so there's, for me, it was almost a comfort, just like there's no way to make everybody happy. And you probably sense that as well. And, and I'm really embarrassed how much that, that moves me of the idea of, of, of other people's opinion, and I'm wanting to shape it to be favorable towards me. And I so admire what we read about Jesus. When the Pharisees were trying to trap them in a question, they said this. They said, teacher, speaking to Jesus, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, but truly teach the way of God. You do not care about anyone's opinion. They saw that Jesus was not swayed by appearances. He truly taught the way of God. 
doesn't that doesn't that seem to be a sweet place to live mentally? Like I don't care what other people think. Like there's an obnoxious way of, of thinking like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way Jesus. Like I'm not controlled by managing your perception of me. I'm just going to do what is true. I'm going to preach, teach the way of God. And here's what Jesus said on the other side about people who were good at winning the praises of others. He said, "Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false." A prophets. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now, it should be noted, it's, it's a good thing to have a good reputation, but Jesus is referring to a form of popularity that is based on appealing to the masses. If you say and do in order to manage people's opinions of you, if, that's, if that controls what you do, then you're even going to disqualify yourself from any kind of service to God. That's a bold statement, but that's what Paul said in Galatians 1.10. He said, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And what am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. People pleasers will find it difficult, maybe even impossible, to truly be a servant of Christ. Their loyalty is bent towards, what, towards conforming towards others' expectations and what would make for pleasant company or pleasant conversation. But like all sins, this, this people-pleasing idea and this desire to get popularity or to have people like me, it has an enslaving effect. It's not a freeing thing to try to form everyone's opinion of you to be positive. It has an enslaving effect. And that's why some of us who struggle with this will, will leave certain social settings and we're replaying that awkward conversation. <laughs> why did I say that? Or did it, did it land this way or did it land that way? Do I need to call and make sure, you know, so it has this enslaving aspect to it that makes for a miserable person. And, and wouldn't it just be nice to not care what people thought about you? And, and I think there's two things that can help get us there where we don't care, and in a good way, we don't care what people think. One is th- this point is that popularity fades. It will not last and if you work hard enough to make it last with enough people and kind of achieve that, that type of popularity or type of public approval that you so desire, then you'll be the most miserable of souls because you'll just be a, a shell of yourself. You'll be a fake. And the other is to see clearly enough to value the creator over the, the, the creature. You know, some people's opinions about you matter more than others, Right? I mean, this is true. We all know this kind of instinctively. Like, let's say somebody came up to me uh, after a sermon at some point, and they said, you know what? You're a terrible preacher. You're nothing like Joel Osteen. <laughs> like, and I don't want to beat up on Joel Osteen here, but I'll, I'll just say I don't, I don't model my preaching after him. And so th- that wouldn't discourage me very much. I'd be like, oh, okay, might be a compliment. I don't know. So, but anyway, on the other side, let's say somebody says, hey, you're a terrible preacher. You never teach the meaning of the text. Well, no, wait a second. That's kind of my value here. And so that opinion would have more of an effect on me. So uh, opinions kind of matter, and some carry more weight than others. Some op- people's opinions we should value more than others. And so certainly if we're going to kind of have some kind of hierarchy of like maybe, maybe someone's theology I agree with will have more of an effect on me than someone I disagree with, so if I'm going to base my opinion on myself on a, on a hierarchical system, you can get no higher than our creator, right? And so what is God's opinion of me? What does God think of me? 
does God have a positive view of me? I mean, I'm, I do pretty well. I'm a, I teach the Bible. I'm a preacher. I must be kind of top shelf Christian, right? Or does he have a negative view of me? Are, are my sins worse? Because I am a preacher. It's more hypocritical. Well, look, the, the good news of the gospel is this, is that I'm actually bad enough to go to hell for eternity. I have enough sin stored up for that to happen. But the good news is that in Christ, all my sins have been nailed to the cross. I bear them no more. The sins that would have kept me from God and his wrath targeted on me has been removed. And and more than that, my sinful record has been replaced with the perfect record of Christ. And so now when God sees me, he does not see the record of Kevin Shoemaker, which is awful, but he sees the record of Jesus Christ, which is perfect. And because I believe the gospel, what Christ has done and what he has accomplished, have turned to him for mercy, turned to follow him and no longer live after myself. Jesus is not bitter with me because of my sins. My sins have been removed, so there's not that barrier. And so you know what that makes me? In John 15, 12 through 15, we read that for us who believe the gospel and have turned to Christ, he calls us his friends. In John 15, 12, it says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Now, we often hear that Jesus died for sinners. That, of course, is true. But one thing that we need to hear and that we need to have kind of beaten to our brain over and over, just like we've heard that Jesus died for sinners, you know who Jesus died for? His friends. He calls you his friend. And and, and in this text, in John 15, he's talking about, this is how they're going to know that you belong to me. It's going to be your love for one another. You're being friends, a group of friends that have each other's back, that lay down their lives for one another. And so may that great love with which Christ has loved us and made us his friends Help us to not just desire to have good friends, but to be really good friends who love well, even when it costs us, because it will make us wise and it will make us happy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to remove our sins and to make us your friends. I pray that we would see what you are saying more and more in John 15, that you didn't just die for sinners, you died for your friends that you wanted to bring to yourself to live with forever. And would you help us to, um, to cultivate sweet friendships on this earth, in this, in this community, and in this church, and may it grow to be so sweet that it would let out an aroma of the great friendship that you have for us, even in giving your life for us. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.